This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Role-playing Sense of Place. The Y-Teen Club Cookbook. End of the Century Horror Essentials. And Beard Spaulding and Douglas Devores. Gloomier, a night at Hemlock Hall by Atlas Games is now live on Kickstarter. Gloomier is the standalone storytelling sequel to the award-winning Gloom, with even more doom and gloom. What makes Gloomier, Gloomier? A return to the beloved original setting of Gloom's Hemlock Hall. More secrets, more revelations of the ever-so-gothic Wellington Smythe family. Clear story prompts put the focus on arsenic-drenched storytelling. Gloom fans love the guests and stories mechanics. So what does Gloomier bring you? More guests and stories! Compatible with all core Gloom games! Straight from the fiendish mind of original Gloom designer Keith Baker. Plus, the Gloomsters at Atlas Games are terribly tickled to unveil the Gloom Griefcase! <laughs> A deluxe storage case to store all your Gloom games. Plus, 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 all backers also receive the Gloom Chronicles a campaign-style mini-expansion for use with any core Gloom game. So dare to enter Hemlock Hall and see what delightful disaster awaits! Back Gloomier on Kickstarter now through April 8th. For more info, go to atlas-games.com or follow at Atlas Games on Twitter. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, the ocean of blood pouring out of the elevator, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the eerie non-Euclidean confines of the gaming hut because Patreon backer Jonathan Keim asks, when is it most effective to have the place be a really active part of the story as in the overlook in The Shining? And how do you translate that to RPGs? Robin? Well, first of all, nothing's going to be wrong now that we've been tasked to look after the gaming hut all winter here. Exactly. Right. Frankly, I mean, we got that whole basement full of food. There's that really great uh, ghostly bartender who tops you up on bourbon all the time. What's he, not to he love? He seems very understanding. He is. Yeah, the, the little, the weird little girls. I'm not so comfortable with those. But so the first of all, if we look back at the very beginnings of role playing, place the dungeon mm-hmm. is intrinsic to that, and the idea that you are in a particular environment and a lot of uh, description goes into that environment is one that uh, some OSR people have sort of pointed to as something that's fallen by the wayside over the years. So the the dungeon is the the archetypal environment where, you know, when you first start playing, if you play D&D or one of its F20 relatives, that 10-foot corridor with the fungus over there and, uh, oh, there's, there's this bioluminescent lichen and the spiders, you know, that moment can be very exciting and fresh. But once people, I think, are kind of inured to a certain amount of setting description, I think you do have to do a little more work to make them feel the physical environment. And one of the ways to do that before we get to, you know, how to convey atmosphere is to make it a very distinct 
environment where, uh, to pick up from something we were talking about last week, the group at least is alone, that you are isolated in this place and the story is there for a while. And so The Shining is an excellent example of you are isolated in this environment and you know that it's a sort of a, a bottle episode, if, if you will, where you are going to have to continue to deal with this place and only what is in this place for the course of the set of problems that you uh, currently have. And so, again, dungeon, isolated environment. You yep. go through a wilderness, you uh, encounter some some orcs on the way, and then you go down in a hole and leaving it and going back is a big deal. The overlook, you're there for the winter, you're snowed in. Uh, you're in this uh, installation on a faraway planet and uh, the uh, next relief ship coming to pick up members of your research team is going to be three months away. So it is a place where you are in some sense stuck for some reason. And it helps if the place, as we have hinted, has a specific character as opposed to a default character. And I think this is where the default dungeon doesn't seem like a place that is an active part of the story, because while it channelizes story and provides all of your foes and, you know, maps out the sort of beats of the story, it doesn't take part in the story as a character a lot of times. It's just one more set of 10 by 10 rooms and and five foot corridors spidered through the ground by yet another necromancer. They're all basically the same. Your first dungeon is a unique place. And after that, it becomes a trope. Right. And that's why a lot of uh, the classic dungeons have something else going on. They are, you know, uh, underneath a fallen city or they have, they're in an ice cavern. And so everything is cold and there's ice everywhere. There's a place where gravity messes up because it leads to some sort of weird planar event. There's elements of the dungeon or it's just elementally evil to pick something at random. There are things in the dungeon that give it specific character as opposed to generic character. And this is uh, the same as true for your first haunted house in Call of Cthulhu, possibly is the Corbett house from the book. And that is plenty scary because you're just thinking about all the, the spooky houses that you've seen in movies. But your fifth haunted house in Call of Cthulhu is just a set of walls to be torn down looking for the skeleton or the manuscript or whatever. And it ceases to be an involving character. And that I think is the secret is to go back, not necessarily to your first dungeon or your first haunted house, but to go back to what made those come alive for you when you first started playing and what can make them come alive, even to jaded uh, role players of the sort that you have become. And that involves making the setting as with the overlook, literally a character in the story to have wants and demands and dreams and an attitude and is the setting. It doesn't have to be sentient in the way that the overlook is, but it should always be impressing itself upon you in the way that a really gorgeous city or a really uh, stark moorland or a really Edenic jungle does in the real world that uh, there are places that you can go in, depending on you, those places might be as close as next door that really impinge themselves on you and aren't just, you know, a flat bit between you and the Starbucks, right? It's the same thing. You take that, those sensibilities out of the living world, put them into the game world, and then you amp them up with uh, necromancers and, and whatnot, because guess what? You get to do that in the game world and make it even more exciting and personal. So instead of just being a, oh, I don't know, to pick something at random, abandoned casino on the Mississippi River, 
where you are wandering around with John Tynes for reasons known only to yourself, it can become... Those reasons would be John and Tynes, I believe. Yeah, those reasons. It can become a uh, a haunted, uh, deep one establishment, which basically, if you're somewhere with Tynes, everywhere is. And you can take those sensibilities and sort of blow them up and uh, uh, personify them. Again, a subset of the Gothic, as basically all Western literature has been since the 1700s. So uh, how to effectuate that uh, is the next question. And you are, I think, painting a picture, first of all. That picture can be a word picture uh, if you are uh, really strong with narration, because it doesn't really matter if every player has the same picture in their head, as long as they all have a vivid picture in their head. And the thing about verbal narration is that actually a little goes a long way, that if you uh, have a few sort of production design details for each room, a few sensory inputs, that will then activate the imaginations of the player, and they can bring that into their own uh, theater of the mind. So you may uh, think about breaking down your location into a couple of key locales, and when you first have them enter a sub-location, whether that's the, uh, you know, the bar in the abandoned riverboat casino where there's the the deep one bartender and then oh and then there's the pier that's somewhere they have to go uh, so have a detail for that you know add a scuttling rat or, or whatever it is but just make sure that as they transition to those sort of mini environments as uh, that you have the equivalent of the oh there's this very strange carpeting on the floors it's this sort of uh, 70s orange uh, geometric carpeting and uh oh and there's a kid on a and he's on a plastic tricycle and the tricycle makes this particular sound so look at the way the production design works in something like the shining and come up with your own production design you can go beyond the verbal of course to the visual if you can find enough photo reference on a location or enough different locations that you can just you know bring up here's Here's what the the grand ballroom looks like. Bing, there you go. And then everybody does have the same uh, details in in their heads, which is uh, not necessary, but is a I guess a little added bonus. And then they can begin imagining themselves in that environment and go, well, what about those sconces over there? What what what's up with those? Can I go over and and so essentially you are creating sort of the video game exploration environment uh, where people are going and and twiddling the knobs and, and imagining their characters in that space. And another thing that you can do with that technology, the the character twiddling is allow the characters or the players rather to create the knobs. Uh, when they walk in to the creepy old uh, haunted riverboat casino, have a, a player, if, if, if a player says, you know, how wet is the carpet? It's like, well, your character's over there. You tell me. And th then the player will often contribute a detail that is currently bubbling away in their subconscious. And that is a way to involve that player specifically and also provide a degree of, of co-responsibility because seldom in my experience, do players let themselves out by saying, Oh, it's warm and dry. It's perfect. <laughs> uh, players yeah, really, they're asking the carpet is very wet, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And then you, if you allow them, they're like, Oh yeah, it's, it's drenched in this one spot. And I'm not even sure that's water. And now you who only, had uh just this room you know maybe as an anteroom for the the big horror are like yeah maybe it's not water and it's and, and you and the player now have a moment of co-collaboration and i feel that especially 
in horror and certainly in any game where you want to maintain an emotional investment in the setting, letting the players co-create as you are comfortable with is a great way to do that. And it's a great way to pull players in and to join some of those individual sets of, of memory palace up. Certainly evocative images are great and I've used them to great effect. You find a, a good picture of a, a creepy abandoned uh, school somewhere in the woods of upstate New York. And you put those up and suddenly that's the government facility where they were experimenting with Migo or whatever. And fun can be had. And it's a great time for players and the GM to sort of look at these images and all everyone collaboratively pull stuff out. But the point is, once you're allowing players to collaboratively pull stuff out and ask questions, move into them, let, let, let them answer. And then you can keep them in, in mind, uh, what the general character. And I mean that in the active sense, not the sort of nature of the place is as well. So if the player is saying, Oh no, it's, it's actually quite dry. What a surprise. Then you can think, okay. And so, so when you move into that dry spot, you sort of hear music. It's as though a, a rattle of dice and maybe the, the whir of the roulette table. That's odd that this one little patch seems to be dry and nothing has happened there. And then you've, you know, used that to sort of creep them out as well. So it's give and take, but it's the, the goal should be for everyone to build up this sensorium around them. And then for you to keep in mind that the sensorium has a job, which is in a horror game, scaring the bejesus out of people. And in many other games is also convey some story beat, some story insight. So if they're going through a, a bog standard dungeon, it's still important. Is the dungeon got a dragon at the bottom of it or a necromancer? And those are going to drive how the dungeon reacts to you. Right. Right. In, in a story about place, it's implicit that the place conceals a mystery, which you discover. Uh, that mystery may be horrific. It may be scientific. That uh, depends on the genre. It may be, you know, just the cases of loot that the uh, that your rival gangsters planted. But there's the place poses a question. And so the next bit of prep that you're doing is that now that you've uh, dealt with the production design collaboratively or otherwise, you're looking for ways for the parts of that location to actually feature in the story and in the action rather than just being a backdrop. So the casino is the place where you go to be tempted by madness. The basement is the place where you go to begin chipping away at that concrete wall that looks much newer than all of the other walls. The uh, attic is the place uh, where you go to respond to the cries of the uh, person who you do not expect to be trapped in the attic. And uh, you want sort of uh, a number of locations that each partially either pose more questions or answer the questions that other places posed, but that that is your, your prep is to look at this environment as a series of questions and answers. Yeah. And uh, not to toot our own horns, but gumshoe sort of makes a virtue of that by deliberately casting scenes around the question of what questions are they asking and what answers do they provide? And since scenes quite often take place in rooms or locations, there you go. You very clearly have what the scene is should be prioritizing delivering. You can prioritize elements of the of the place to deliver that or to deliver those hints or to even respond to those emotional cues uh, if, if that's all that the place is doing. And uh, you can take that same technology and apply it to anything from, uh, like we said, Dungeons and Dragons to literally any other game, because the inherent nature of what next is sort of the core activity of all role-playing games. And if a room does not help you answer what next, then that room is just an area of corridor and you should walk through it. But it can at the very least answer the question of 
how do I feel about what's coming next? And that can be, you know, with, uh, lights, sounds, smells is a good, uh, environmental aspect that is underutilized, I think, in, in gaming. And then there's the sort of, you know, level on which, you know, you are translating the, the place into a puzzle. Uh, and that happens both at a story level. And it also may happen when you graph it out on graph paper and you draw that dungeon or you map that haunted house and you find out where the secret doors are and you establish all of these sort of very specific locations. Or it can be a more um, abstract sense where you have a pretty good idea of what's in a warehouse. You know that the the thing is somewhere in here and you know that the real situation is that those gangsters that hid that treasure were slain by treachery and their ghosts still haunt this warehouse. And so the warehouse becomes this sort of uh, tomb in a way and everything that you say about the warehouse, even though you don't have it mapped out and it barely matters because the treasure is just wherever the characters look after meeting X number of ghosts, the warehouse is a tomb and that gives you the qualities of the place and maybe even some of the persona of the place. If the tomb is a gangstery tomb, as opposed to sort of an Egyptian tomb, right? Right. And now you mentioned sort of being trapped in places. It turns out, that it's spring, and uh, we've done our job perfectly. We've guarded the uh, Overlook hut, and we can exit this hut with nothing bad having happened and enter this commercial where surely nothing bad will happen and uh, go to the other side where I'm sure something even better will happen. Bargain fans rejoice! Gumshoe has once again invaded the bundle of holding. With a brand new PDF super deal. Featuring The Fall of Delta Green by Ken. The Guyan Reach by Robin. Time Watch by Kevin Culp. And Lorefinder by Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Plus a host of other supplements and goodies. Buy at the ever-escalating mysterious level-up price to snag them all. But wait, Ken and Robin, you might be saying. I already have most or all of these. Due to my rare refinement as a role-playing fan and all-around paragon of humanity. Well, what about your players? Are you tired of them dead-beating around when they could also own all of these fine books? If so, alert them to this must-purchase opportunity. With extreme refinement, of course. Find it at bundleofholding.com. But be warned, this bundle must close on March 29th. The chopping of onions, the slicing of chives, the bubbling of butter in the pan tell us that we're once more in that most delicious of huts, the Food Hut. And uh, this time around, we're going to do a, a sequel of sorts to a segment we did together back in the waning days of what turned out to be the normal times, December 2019, in episode 373, uh, we looked at the Snow Voyager's Cookbook, which is a uh, one of those classic spiral-bound recipe collections that uh, people put together uh, in order to uh, fundraise for a cause and which provide a, a great snapshot into how actual home cooking occurs uh, in uh, different places at specific times. And uh, in that case, we're looking at uh, something from Barrie, Ontario. This is uh, Valerie's family's organization that they're involved in that produced this cookbook. And we found all sorts of, of wonders therein. And I asked Ken if maybe you could uh, uh, dig up uh, something equivalent. But, and your response to the Snow Voyager's cookbook comes uh, not from uh, your side of the family, but from uh, Sheila's. Yes, it is uh, from Sheila's side of the family, which is, as devoted uh, stalkers will know, from Nebraska. 
easily a state. And uh, specifically, in this case, uh, Sheila's family is from both sides of the Nebraska-Iowa border, a distinction without a difference. That's literally what that means, is the difference between Nebraska and Iowa. And it's from New Market, Iowa. It's from the New Market Y Teen Club. And the Y Teen Club is a club of teens associated with the area YMCA. Uh, and there are Y Teen Clubs Possibly even now, but there certainly were a zillion of them in the 1960s. And so these recipes, although quaint and funny, are, it is to be remembered, provided by teens. And so therefore, certainly probably by teens' moms in many cases. Uh, this is from 1965. So uh, we, are, we are before the era of, of flavor, but... I will point out that at least in Newmarket, Iowa in 1965, chili did involve chili powder and as much as an eighth of a teaspoon of paprika, Robin. So there. Yeah. So before we get to disambiguating various versions of hamburger pie, mm-hmm. there was a, another question that I, that I had when I was looking up foods of Nebraska. And mm-hmm. the question is, what is the paradigmatic food of Nebraska? Now, the Internet will tell you that it's something called a cheese Frenchie. But since you have direct information, uh, you have uh, a different answer to that question. And I hope you grilled your informant thoroughly because I I have many questions. Right. Um, Well, I I, I grilled her uh, enough for comedy, uh, enough to mock her, as so often is the case when I ask, is this really Nebraska thing? And I get an even better answer. The cheese Frenchie, before we move on, is fundamentally a grilled cheese sandwich that you make. You batter it in cornflakes. And then you deep fry it. So it's a Nebraska's answer to the Monte Cristo. I will point out, by the way, before we all make fun of the cheese Frenchie, which does in fact sound ridiculous, that Nebraska is also the home of the Reuben sandwich. One of the great American sandwiches was born at the Reuben, born at the Blackstone Hotel, rather, in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. It's a legitimate, it's like Johnny Carson. It's one of Nebraska's great exports to be valued, even um, uh, venerated. Yes, I'm greatly attached to the Reuben, and the Reuben is a heartbreak sandwich. Let us digress within the digression. Sure, absolutely. uh, Because it is something that you would think that everybody can do. You'd think it would be idiot-proof to make a Reuben. But it is not at all. There's so many things that can go wrong with Reuben. I love a great Reuben. For me, the platonic ideal Reuben was at a a sort of a big diner-style restaurant at the bottom of a hotel called Murray's, which hasn't existed until the 1980s. They always got it right, but uh, otherwise a Reuben is a, like a 50-50 crapshoot as to whether they're they're uh, going to get that right. So now that I know that N- Nebraska's... What would, you, what would you say is the most common flaw of the uh, wild or commercial Reuben in your experience? Well, unfortunately, there are many ways it can go wrong. One, it can be too soggy. The sauerkraut yeah, right. kind of soaked through into the bread, so losing the crispiness of the bread. And also the, the, the dressing, the sort of French-style dressing that uh, should go with it is is very often wrong. The Thousand Island dressing. A Thousand yes. Island dressing. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, French dressing would be horrible. Those are both a major problem. And ratios seem to be a problem with the Reuben somehow. Yes. You can't have too little kraut. You can't have too much kraut. It is a rare sandwich that can be actually thrown off its game by the addition of more meat. But the Reuben, you need that meat to kraut to dressing to cheese ratio to be kind of in the zone. And you can... Add, and I've had a Reuben at uh, Manny's Deli in Chicago, which is a great deli, does amazing corned beef, but they're very, very proud of it. And so at some level, you're eating like a corned beef meatball in the middle of your sandwich, which is fine, but it is not quite a de trop for the Reuben. But anyway, the Reuben is great. The cheese Frenchie is ridiculous. And according to Sheila, neither of those are the paradigmatic food of Nebraska. That is something called the Runza. 
which is basically a beef and sauerkraut pasty or popover or uh, pirok or whatever uh, tradition your uh, folded over bread with meat inside is called. It's from Volga German immigrants to Nebraska, and they uh, made them. It's from uh, the an old German word meaning satchel or belly, depending. And that's what it is. It's it's a satchel-shaped ball of meat and kraut that goes in your belly. Right. And they sort of take fresh bread and kind of turn it into a pita by by squishing it, if I understand correctly, like a fresh Kaiser. Yeah, it, it's it's flattened bread, not yeah. flat bread, right? And then I think it's it's grilled on the outside sometimes. Either way, they established a, a chain of Runza restaurants called the Runza Hut, which is, uh, according to the, the internet, there are like 85 locations in Nebraska and four in other states, which is the paradigmatic explanation of paradigmatic yes. foods. And, and uh, Runza is, is a registered trademark. They, they attempted to export the Runza to Lithuania for some reason, and that, that didn't work, possibly because Lithuania was in the process of being invaded by the KGB. This is in, in 1991. But for whatever reason, the Lithuanians looked at that and said, don't give us that Volga German nonsense. We have our own thing that we fold over and put meat in. But the, the, the Runza is, is the food. Sheila, you could see the faraway stars in her eyes when she thought of the Runza and right. all the fun times they had at the Runza hut there between watching Nebraska be beaten by OU at football. Right. But it sounds like that this is a restaurant food, right? Because of course it's a registered trademark. Yes. The Runza is now a registered, registered trademark. Right. So one might argue that the actual paradigmatic food of places is the things that your mom makes for you, which brings us finally to the the Y-Teen cookbook. Mm -hmm. And so, Ken, uh, why don't you start uh, uh, laying on the highlights uh, from this and what they tell you about food culture in uh, Nebraska in, in the mid-60s. Okay. Well, uh, you've already teased uh, the hamburger pie. Should we start there? Or should we start uh, with the Let thing us go that... for the ham. People are, are salivating for the, for the scoop, if not the actual meal of the hamburger pie. Well, they will, they will perhaps stop salivating when they learn that the hamburger pie is basically a uh, oven casserole that you make. It's sort of, let's say, it's a shepherd's pie potentially, because it is mashed potatoes and hamburger are sort of the core elements of it. There's an onion, so there is actually potential flavor there. Uh, <laughs> and in the recipe provided by uh, young Linda Bailey in 1965, there is also a can of green beans and a can of condensed tomato soup, both of which are perhaps... I think excess to requirements, but there we are. This is the authenticity of the spiral bound cookbook mm -hmm. is the use uh, and perhaps abuse of processed foods and particularly of, of canned yes. vegetables. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. Which reminds me of the shrimp Creole. Oh, okay. This is going to be Which good. was the star recipe that sort of caught my eye in that in the tradition of things from can. You may say, shrimp creole, how many cans can be involved in something like that? And I will tell you more than you would think. Shrimp creole, according to Patty Combs, contains one can shrimp. I'm already agog. <laughs> one can tomato okay, soup. Okay, so, so don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> or it's, it's... If, if you do, don't blame us. <laughs> We've warned you. Unlike the gaming hut, this is not a tips segment. Um, one can tomato soup. And th this is how you are nailed into the authentic zeitgeist of mid-America in the mid-century, one can cream of mushroom soup. If you are making anything 
for dinner or for a church potluck in America during, you know, the, the pre-Watergate era, you are making it with a can of cream of mushroom soup. And last... And, and Ontario and Nebraska are on the same page on that. Absolutely. Last, Robin. Well, you've seen it. I, I, I can't ask you to guess, but the fourth can is a can of spaghetti. Because what <laughs> says Creole more than <laughs> Chef Boyardee? I mean... I think a lot of people thought that Chef Boyardee was from pretend Italy, but no, he's from pretend New Orleans. Well, Creole technically, I think, means a, a fusion of different things, of cultures meeting and colliding, and in this case, devouring one another. Right, and, and, and producing something that Puritans of, of the relevant cultures perhaps look down their nose at. And then uh, one half cup of cheese, which you add because in the Midwest, you have to add cheese. Right. Does it specify anything about the, the nature of this cheese, or is that implicit? Just cheese. I mean, that Just means cheese. that means either American <laughs> or cheddar. There's only two cheeses, Robin. I don't. I don't even understand this question. And so you make the spaghetti. You heat it up. You add the shrimp. Heat it up. Uh, maybe cut the shrimps in half if you're feeling fancy. Add the soups undiluted. <laughs> the recipe is very clear. Uh, this is going to be glop, and you are going to eat it. And the cheese. Then, I love Patty's sort of devil-may-care attitude here, put in a baking dish and bake in a moderate oven until bubbly hot. <laughs> to extend this recipe, add another can of shrimp. <laughs> and I feel like, you wait, know... Wait, won't that throw off the balance, Ken? It, well, I mean, that's the secret of shrimp creole, Robin, is that it begins as shrimp creole and then becomes shrimp creole. It's just, uh, it's just that good. And I feel like once you've... Once you've had you know, enough of that first recipe to extend the recipe means, I think, to serve it for leftovers the next day, maybe you're you're okay. Your body is still digesting the tomato soup, spaghetti, and cheese, and just just is desperately craving the shrimp at, at that right. juncture. Well, well, that's the thing about the spiral bound genre is that it's something you're proud enough to tell other people, but it's something that is practical to make at home. Exactly. And what could be more practical than opening five cans and putting them in a casserole dish? And until it's bubbly wait hot. Until it's bubbly. All right. And then uh, we did promise you two kinds of hamburger pie. Remember, the other hamburger pie had green beans in it, which, again, I, I, I can sort of see all of this. And again, before we make too much fun, it has salt, pepper, Worcestershire sauce, and chili powder. Uh, so there is only a quarter teaspoon of chili powder still, but there is a flavor. It is present. That's probably one better than Ontario would have done in <laughs> but, the same year. But the other version of uh, hamburger pie, which quite frankly, I'm not going to say it sounds good, but I think it maybe sounds better, is upside down hamburger pie. Trudy Bengard going for the fancy. And this is your you're sort of heading. You can see where it's leaving the shepherd's pie because the other one had the potatoes in it, mashed potatoes. Now we're moving into sort of a uh, a new market Iowa version of Yorkshire pudding. Because the upside-down hamburger pie has, on top of it, two cups of prepared biscuit mix. And you make your upside-down hamburger pie the same way that you would your regular hamburger pie with your onion and your uh, and your drippings. Two tablespoons of drippings, which I love, that you've got a, a jar of drippings there in the fridge um, or under the sink, depending on how excited you are about that newfangled germ theory of disease. And you, you scoop out the drippings from your previous makings of things. Uh, do your hamburger and that, add a can of tomato sauce, two teaspoons of chili powder, one teaspoon of salt, little pepper, half a green pepper. There you go. You got a vegetable in it. That takes care of those green bean whiners. A, a fresh vegetable, if I understand correctly. Yes, exactly. The green pepper is a fresh vegetable. Two tablespoons of catsup. I remember uh, you, you put the, um, uh, the meat on top of the strips 
of uh, green pepper. So the green peppers on the bottom, then there's meat. And then you uh, make your biscuit mix according to the directions on package, pat into a nine inch square. So it goes into your nine by nine baking pan or casserole dish. And then Trudy Bengard says flop biscuit square on top of meat mixture, <laughs> which quite frankly, she was selling me on this until now. That's as good a piece of advice for getting through Nebraska as I've ever seen. Um, bake 20 to 25 minutes serves four to six. I think that that might be, uh, well, you know, if, if the six people are ready to go out for runzas afterwards, I think that it could serve six, but, uh, but yeah, then that's, that's the thing. And that's basically a sort of very, uh, robust, uh, Yorkshire pudding, right? Cause you've got your bread shell on the top. You've got your meaty goodness on the bottom. Yorkshire pudding doesn't have anything like green vegetables in it, but still it's a beautiful thought that you might want both vegetable and flavor. So good for you, Trudy. And so I, I think that the upside down hamburger pie, again, maybe I wouldn't make it, but. But it's I something that you, sort of, you could use the idea and yeah. update it a bit with contemporary uh, flavors and ingredients. And uh, you could make something quite, quite tasty out of that formula. Yeah, I think so. And then I guess um, my final thought in the tradition of the cheese Frenchie is something that Quite frankly, I would make. I would make it, and then I would never tell anyone. <laughs> not, not even on your internationally acclaimed podcast? Not even on my internationally acclaimed podcast. But from uh, uh, Jean Potter, uh, she suggests a little delicacy called French Fried Franks. And again, uh, the, the genius here is the reuse of the packaged product, because rather than mix up a batter like some kind of loser, uh, she suggests just using a cup of... Aunt Jemima pancake mix. And, uh, you mix that with some, uh, a little bit of cornmeal, right? Basically, you're making a corn dog. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you put in a little sugar, a little water, beat it up to make your, uh, your, your batter. Then dip the wieners in batter with kitchen fork or tongs, drain off excess batter, fry in hot, deep fat at 375, two to three minutes, drain on absorbent paper, insert skewers, serve with mustard or catsup. Makes four servings. That that actually sounds right. Everyone gets two French fried franks. I think that's delightful. And you know, I might even try that with the with the um, uh, cheese Frenchy uh, cornflakes in it, just to see what that would do. Because um, you've already got that corn flavor of the cornmeal. I think that that might be plenty tasty. And, so, and linguistically, that tells us that Nebraska or New Market, Iowa, which is where you live if you want to live in Nebraska but not be in a Bruce Springsteen record, mm-hmm. is in the catsup zone. Yeah, as it was the ketchup zone. Right. And so, finally, I think I'm going to ask you to uh, to flip to the dessert section right. and take us out uh, with uh, with a dessert that looks exciting to you. Okay. Um, let's see. There are two. In fact, there are two different dessert sections. Right. Because this is where often, unless there's like Jello involved, perhaps, although some things with Jello in them are uh, rock. Uh, this is where a spiral bound notebook is not going to disappoint you. Right. The, the sweets are, are still going to be uh, A1 today. Mm-hmm. Well, there's cookies, cakes, and desserts, and pies. So there's four dessert sections because, by God, these are teens, and God love them. <laughs> uh, I guess we could uh, briefly note the existence of cottage cheese rolls which is basically a roll mixture, but you make cottage cheese, the, the, the milk ingredient. I think that might add a certain tang. They suggest topping it with brown sugar, vanilla, and chopped nuts. So that's, that's a thought. There's a million different cookie recipes, all kind of good cookies. 
cherry nut bars. Those sound great. That basically involves raiding uh, your dad's bar for the maraschino cherries and using them all up to make him mad at you. That seems great. And you can uh, have a pink butter frosting with uh, more maraschino cherries in it. That's I, I kind of like that household. Uh, Shirley Fine's household sounds great. And then there's German's sweet chocolate cake, which sounds great. And uh, let's see what else we got. Well, let's let's finish off with something that seems a little terrifying, the salad dressing cake, which is very terrifying until you realize that salad dressing is what artificial mayonnaise used to be. So Miracle Whip, for example, which is not mayonnaise, is technically a salad dressing. And that's what uh, Joyce Ryan means when she says salad dressing cake. She does not mean one half uh, or one cup of like, you know, shaken up Italian craft out of the bottle. What she means is a cup of, of Miracle Whip. So it's a mayonnaise cake. And again, that adds a, uh, an eggy uh, tang to, to the proceedings. So there are millions of cakes. There's um, several different angel food cakes. There's uh, a lot of good stuff. Everyone is is on their uh, their their cake job, right? Well, well, I think that the Miracle Whip cake, yeah, I think pretty much we're, we're not going to top that as a, a spiral bone uh, recipe. No, so I think it's uh, time for us to close up this particular spiral bound uh, recipe book and just uh, just think about that cheese Frenchie or the uh, the fried Franks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. let's think about that and slide slowly into torpor. Let's drive northeast to Chicago or. Southwest to Oklahoma. Let's not stay here. This is a dangerous liminal zone. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast on its plastic tricycle by joining such highly stable Patreon backers as Ryan McClelland, Brian Thomas, James Stewart, William Sirwan, and Diane Donaldson. Once more, the projector rattles out. Once more, we enter across the sticky floor. Once more, we sit down in the center seat center aisle of the cinema hut because once more, we're here to talk the horror film essentials. And this is lucky number 13 in what I think when we began, we envisioned as being many fewer episodes. But here we are. Uh, we're in the 90s. Uh, we're wearing our flannel into the theater, not least because it's the style of the time, but also because it's chilly in the theaters. They got the air conditioner crank. Right. And, and it's the end of the 90s. It's the 90s 
where we're starting to realize that the end of the century is upon us and horror becomes a little bit disjunctive. Things uh, begin to sort of uh, break apart and question themselves and the, the thought. It's a, a different sort of apocalypse than we had in the 60s, which is sort of a social cultural apocalypse. This is sort of more of a meta apocalypse, an inbreak, the idea that uh, things are changing and being shaken up. Irony has moved into sort of the, uh, the meta zone. And so often horror films are becoming uh, commentaries on other things. And Ken, you want to talk about uh, Abel Ferrara's uh, the Addiction from 1995. I do want to talk about that because in the way, in the same way that Ghostbusters is a love letter to New York, this is a love-hate letter to New York in that it is a portrait of the New York heroine scene made famous by every Velvet Underground song ever and done by Abel Ferrara, who was a participant therein. It stars Lily Taylor as a woman who is turned into a vampire after being bitten possibly during some sort of street attack situation, or, or it, it's unclear exactly what the social setup is between the woman and her attacker, Casanova. But at any rate, a little Taylor leaves the attack becoming a vampire. And if she becomes a vampire, she becomes both more predatory and self-confident, uh, but also is drawn into this weird, creepy underworld and begins to sacrifice everything else in her life to the cause of getting more blood. Not a tremendously subtle movie, but a tremendously interesting movie. And uh, it has one of the great Christopher Walken walk-on scenes. Classically, Walken read the script, said, I want to play that character. Abel Ferrara said, that's a girl character. And Christopher Walken said, not anymore. And uh, there we are. Or rather he uh, said, not anymore. Not anymore. And so uh, it, it has a, a great segment. Annabella Oscura wound up playing the attacker, uh, Casanova, which was the part that Abel Ferrara thought that Christopher Walken was going to read for. And so uh, you get a, a great sort of a gender flippy element of the vampire story. It becomes uh, female centered in a way that a lot of um, Ferrara movies maybe aren't. And that makes it interesting as well. It's a very tight uh, movie. It's less than an hour and a half. And it is, as far as I'm concerned, maybe it's not an all-time classic. It's not Night of the Hunter. It's not even maybe Dracula, but it is a absolutely ideal, you know, sort of a, an example of, of Ferrara's vision of establishing a milieu and of using the vampire myth for something other than, you know, looking down Ingrid Pitt's shirt. Uh, it, it's got a lot going on and I'm, I'm very, very fond of it. It's, it's in sort of very classy black and white. It, it's just a cool looking movie. Uh, all the way, you know, it, it's kind of the, you know, Velvet Underground B-side of movies, I would say. Right. And speaking of things that are about to radically change, it is an elegy for the grotty underbelly New York that is a that is going to die. Yeah. That is going to be, uh, you know, the, the Disney Times Square is going to replace the grotty Times Square and the heroin uh, New York is uh, is dying out because uh, the heroin addict vampires, uh, neither of those are going to be able to afford to live in New York uh, <laughs> yeah. very much longer. Right. So vampires, if they have real estate problems, uh, the best thing to do is to uh, move to, uh, uh, well, not move to, but remain in your pyramid uh, lair in the Southwest where you've lived for a millennia. And of course, you have a, a roadhouse there to attract victims in From Dust Till Dawn, Robert Rodriguez, 1996, and uh, written uh, very obviously by uh, Quentin Tarantino, who appears in it in one of the roles. And it is disjunctive in that it's sort of a classic bait and switch movie, one of his sort of structural games that he plays with genre, where it's a compelling, upsetting crime movie until about the halfway point, mm -hmm. at which point it becomes 
an exuberant, over-the-top, ironic vampire movie. It has George Clooney, it has Harvey Keitel, it has Selma Hayek, famously, as a, an, an alluring uh, vampire. These vampires are, the way that they, uh, they die when they're, when they're hit is uh, another sort of uh, fun thing. So it's a, a, a sort of shocking, but then uh, rewarding and fun jangle through uh, cinematic genres yeah it's um it, it it is very much like you say it's it's a great example of the tonal shift that uh rodriguez is capable of it's uh got a, a lot of energy in both of its halves but the energy is directed differently and it's it's, it's sort of a visual spectacle in that the boundary point when they reach the roadhouse and then reveal what's happening is one of the great examples of a cinematic reveal i mean it's up there with that with the famous crane shot from gone with the wind of the oh this is bigger than we thought moment it's uh it's it's really terrific it's got a lot of energy it i don't know that i would necessarily say it's essential but it certainly uh repays watching today speaking of movies that i think were essential, but are not now. We, in 1996, also get uh, the movie Scream, the first one directed by Wes Craven, written by Kevin Williamson, beloved TV scribe of tween heartthrobbery, who then branched out into horror with that, and um, I Know What You Did Last Summer. So they, there's that vibe going on. Uh, it's very teen movie, and it's also a homage, uh, look back at the thriller, uh, or the, not the thriller at the slasher, which is also a mystery. And uh, it's the ladling of mystery and postmodernism onto the thing that is the scream uh, uh, franchises claim to fame. It uh, briefly reawakened the slasher in a way. And I don't know that it's, it, it's necessarily something you go back to now, but it, it had a big effect and it sort of drove, I think a lot of the sort of, Teens in peril genres, your, your, uh, urban legends, your final destinations. A lot of those movies all sort of sprung out of scream, which, uh, because Craven was on his game is a terrific movie that made a ton of money. So right. it exists. That's all we're going to say about scream. I think Yeah, it's, it's disjunctive in the way that it comments on itself. And the, in addition to what you described it doing, it also makes a disreputable seventies genre reputable with a, top-notch cast and great production values. Yeah, a high-production sheen glossed onto it. Right. And so this is really what's responsible for a big horror revival at this point, and pretty much all of the films of that revival we are not going to mention because they're classed-up slasher movies. Mm -hmm. But a film that I do consider absolutely essential and will bring us back into the realm of J-horror, which is going to be a recurring thing uh, in this segment and in the next, is Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Cure from 1997. Kurosawa is uh, brilliant at sort of taking very little resources, sort of grotty real sets, and uh, sort of a a very kind of down tempo uh, rhythm. Almost uh, they're very stylized, but also have kind of a documentary offhandedness. And this film with uh, the great Japanese actor Koji Yakusho is basically about uh, serial killing as being a transmissible disease. And it's about a meme that uh, breaks out and causes people to commit murder and mayhem. Some of the murders are so kind of offhand and casual that there's a a horrible, shocking level to them. And there is the idea, as in a lot of Kurosawa's films, uh, that reality is breaking down. So this is a great example of, of reality horror, which, of course, 
is the theme that uh, runs through the Yellow King. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot else to say about it. You're you're absolutely right. It it's, uh, combines unreality with sort of the serial killer detective-y genre, but is very rapidly moves into the, the unreal in the way that great J-horror does. Bong Joon-ho says it's one of the greatest films of all time, which I guess by itself would make it essential. I don't know that I um, revere it as much as I do some of the other J-horror films, just because... It's sort of, I, I watched them out of order, right? This is one that I came to fourth or fifth or sixth, you know, exploring the genre. So by the time I saw it, I didn't see it as revolutionary, I guess. Is I, I saw it at the film festival. Yeah, it's, it's not Kurosawa's fault. It's my fault that, yeah, I, you, that I. You have no idea what you're seeing when you pick a movie at the, at the festival. Mm. And then I sat down to this and it just, it blew the top of my head off. So yes. I have the opposite where this was a complete revelation to me. Right. And my experience of that in terms of complete revelations, knowing nothing about what I'm going into, except you have to watch this. It will change your life is the ring Hideo Nakata Ringu, as it was called in Japan, uh, which was all of that to me. This was my first example of proper J horror. I don't even think I'd seen Onibaba yet or, or quite on. Uh, this may have been the first Japanese horror movie I ever saw. And when I saw the ring, it just rewrote my horror DNA. It was everything I loved. It's, of course, the story about a haunted videotape that uh, spreads death to those who watch it unless they can pass it on, which adds a lovely level of, of interpersonal guilt and, and awfulness to a otherwise relatively standard story. And then once you think you've got it sorted out, you don't because the, the, the little girl in the well, well, there's more to that story. And I would hate to spoil the, uh, Ringu for anyone who hasn't seen it or seen the remarkably non-terrible American remake of The Ring by Gore Verbinski, which came out in 2002. And I think we wanted to mention in this context as being a remarkably non-terrible American remake. Right. It's, it's non-terrible to the extent that it even improves on uh, The Ring in one key area, which is the original Ring takes place in a sort of a weirdo universe, almost a Stephen King universe, really, where people have psychic powers, and that's just sort of offhandedly brought in midway through, uh, whereas the remake just focuses on the core concept of uh, the film. And in a way, uh, some of the moments it delivers, it does so more effectively than the original. But of course, without the original, you wouldn't have the, the remake and the, as you suggest, the sort of sense of uh, dread and strangeness, the, the techno horror, the idea that the horror is not rooted in the ancient or the Gothic, but is in the then still extant technology of the VHS tape mm -hmm. and, and the, the phone features into that as well, that the yes. uh, communications and entertainment technologies are coming to destroy us and become a vector for vengeance. And also, you know, the fact that the thing that you think will, uh, will help doesn't help. There's a great, just sort of a malign, a universe behind it all that again sort of reminds us of uh, of a Lovecraftian uh, vision. Speaking of things that are really effective tricks that uh, disorient us and uh, drop us in the middle of nowhere, uh, is the original found footage horror film. Uh, not necessarily the very first one ever. You may not have an earlier example, but the one that broke everything wide was the Blair Witch Project, uh, directed by American Sanchez in '99, and this is a film that famously either works on you or it doesn't. Yeah. One of the ways it may work on you is to uh, give you vertigo <laughs> with the use of uh, video cameras uh, spinning around. It, it was enormously effective on me. It sure, sure did work on me. And the original sense of nothing really being explained, 
of the forest that the characters are trapped in basically becoming an area of reality breakdown. Uh, and the fact that th- there was no logic supplied as part of the terror is, I think, the, the secret weapon of that film that the countless other uh, films that then just bash the whole concept of the found footage genre into the ground because, of course, it's cheap to do, mm-hmm. it's briefly fashionable, but this is the one that makes it all work and avoids, you know, it, it does inter- have that turn off the camera, which then becomes a thing in every found footage film. The fact that it, you know, was the first one to really hit with it is a, a big part of its appeal, but I think the underrated part is the its refusal to explain itself. Yeah, it's um, the, the, the notion that having only partial footage means that you're only entitled to part of a story works so amazingly well in this and is so it it just fills me with anger that people feel like what we need is a prequel and a sequel and an explanation. And sometimes all of that in the same film that it, that we just have to have the whole story laid out when it works so well to not have the whole story laid out that the, the little bits that you do get are exactly enough to let you know that badness is happening. Uh, the largely improvised dialogue is a large, large part of that. The, the actors were given very rough descriptions of what the scene would be. And then they sort of play it out. So there's a, a sort of a, a, a John Cat- Cassavetes level of immediacy to it. And it just, it, it picked a great location. Speaking of locations being central, that forest is um, like every second growth forest in America, kind of gross looking and then filmed that way. It's really good. It, it just, it worked on me. I saw it at the midnight premiere in a fairly uh, down at heels uh, theater in Chicago, full house, lots of uh, Chicago hipsters, horror fans, uh, people who'd heard the word of mouth. They all gathered. We're all rowdy and excited. And we all got deeply silent as the movie progressed. It worked on the whole room. One of the great cinematic experiences of my life was seeing this film for the first time with that crowd being just beaten into submission by it. And at the, at the moment where they uh, come upon the house, and I don't think I'm spoiling anything. One person in the theater, not me uh, says, Oh, a house. (laughs) 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 And to get that response out of that guy who was probably the, the, ballsiest, toughest horror fan of all of his friend group, that is cinema at its finest. I would put Blair Witch Project up, you know, in terms of just knowing what it's going for, translating that emotion and pulling it back out of you. It's it's, it's a real masterpiece. And I think that it, it, it's lightning in a bottle. I mean, Myrick and Sanchez couldn't do it again. And I don't think that any of the other films, even the ones that sort of succeed uh, after that, like your Paranormal Activities, that sort of works. I, none of those capture that. It's just something about the, the lack of closure, the, the, the improv uh, character and the sort of archetypal story, the, the core of all horror go to the bad place. Just that, that level of, of perfect interlocking. It, it comes along, you know, once in a generation and it came along in Burkittsville, Maryland, uh, in 1999. I got a, a query once that didn't go anywhere about possibly doing a game based on. Uh, the Blair Witch Project, which uh, would have been an interesting uh, <laughs> experiment yep. since it makes terror out of nothing, right? It's it's a forest and some sticks. And, and as you mentioned, a house. A house. So that brings us to the, to the end of the century, to 1999. And uh, you would think that uh, having an, a new century uh, come along uh, would, uh, would result in, you know, peace and happiness and no worries and no anxieties. But that's not what's going to happen next week. 
when we resume our Horror Essential series. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them, and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing it's time once again to wend our way up the crickety cobweb stairs and we will uh, pause to uh, wave to the painting of the magical king of the salamanders. Uh, he will give us a nice wink because he's a friendly salamander, uh, but even friendlier inside in his Edwardian smoking jacket, in his plush chair, is the consulting occultist. And uh, beloved Patreon backer Ed Sizemore wants to know about Baird Spaulding and Douglas Divorce. And when I first saw those names and quickly checked to see what the deal was, I saw the words New Thought, uh, my heart kind of sank and I thought, oh no. We're just going to have some more boring, new-style spiritualists. But then, Ken, I've, I've looked at your point-form notes, and I see the words Book of Gold describing an ancient civilization in the Gobi Desert, and I knew that Ed, in fact, has us in good hands. So, Ken, tell us about good old Bayard Spaulding, who was born in Gohawkton, New York in 1872, and uh, is that the burned-over district by any chance? That is the burned-over district. You are correct. It is exactly the burned-over district. Bayard Spaulding uh, probably comes up out of that tradition. His Book of Gold sounds very familiar if you're a fan of Mormon prehistory. He personally claimed to have been born in England or maybe India and would, at the drop of a hat, spin uh, heartwarming tales of his ancestral mans in Madras or Spalding, England, both of which are lies. He was born as well, you say, anybody can can bilocate, but being by birthed, uh, tri birthed uh, is an extra yes. trick. His academic life is involved studying to be a mining engineer. He went gold prospecting in the Yukon in the 1890s. Or did he, did he perhaps visit India and Tibet in the 1890s? He went there allegedly with a, a crew of seekers to find the ascended masters, visited India, Tibet, and China, the Spalding family having discovered, as you mentioned, the Book of Gold with the secret location of the hidden Gobi city. He went to find it. I went all over the, the East learning at the feet of, of Mahatmas and sages and uh, unknown superiors. He hung out with Jesus for a while, uh, good times, and then uh, wrote it up. 
or did he? Was he actually arrested in Dawson City in the Yukon and not there at all? Oh, man, the Jesus story was so convincing. Yeah, I know, right? At any rate, uh, he leaves the Yukon, continues to engage in uh, mining engineering all over the West, goes to Montana and Idaho and places like that. He seems to basically have a great gift for cold reading people and for improvising bullshit. He is uh, got great physical stamina and possibly as a result of youthful exposure to other texts of the of the burned over district has a sort of a um, it's sort of a a, uh, if if you think of it as the revised standard version of the Book of Mormon. So Book of Mormon is phony uh, King James prose. This is sort of phony RSV. And so it's sort of uh, in the language of the, of the turn of the century of the 1900s, he can present these sort of spiritual concepts and then run through them, riffing off whatever his listeners say, his interlocutors. At some point, he is in uh, Mount Shasta, uh, the area in California, uh, meets his wife Stella while impersonating an, a professor of agronomy and calling himself Baird T. Spaulding. This is when he takes the uh, pseudonym. He and his wife join the New Thought movement, or gravitate to it at least. The specific movement that they join is one called the Comforter League of Light in San Francisco. It was founded in Portland, Oregon uh, in 1913 by a woman right. named and, Florence. And just briefly remind uh, people now that I've slagged them who, who yep. new, new Thought is. New Thought is basically the precursor to the New Age. It is religious ecumenicism and personal spirituality blended with a, uh, a large dollop of self-help. That's fundamentally what what New Thought is. And it's about, um, well, we've, we, we know that Jesus is, is the answer. Now we're going to change what all the questions were. And that's what New Thought does. He spends some amount of time, uh, according to later very unreliable records, he has written up his Asian adventure and is passing it around hand to hand and impressing people with it. This is always possible. But once he is well within the Comforter League of Light, he begins publishing the Book of Gold, or as he now recalls it, Life and Teaching of the Masters of the Far East in the Comforter magazine. And it attracts the attention of the wife of an Oakland traction baron. I was not able to find out which Oakland traction baron, but it is not impossible that it is the wife of Borax Smith, who pays to have Life and Teaching of the Masters of the Far East published in a run of 2,000 copies. So some people, and I won't name them, need to know what a traction baron is. A traction baron is someone who makes all their money on streetcars and urban rail. Oh, okay. So it's, it's transport. Okay. Right. Anyway, uh, she is impressed by his uh, cold reading and improv and by his manuscript of the, of the City of Gold in uh, the Gobi Desert. And it turns out that the Life and Teaching of the Master of the Far East kind of blows up. It's kind of a big deal. Lots of people are, are uh, ordering copies. Uh, the first print run goes out. Uh, he comes up with a volume two in 1927. More things I forgot to mention about my trip. And, and it originally appears in something called the, the Comforter magazine. Right. Which makes all of this spiritual adventuring sound very, very cozy. Very cozy. Well, that's, I mean, and that is one of his great gifts is that he makes that spiritual adventuring seem cozy. That this is before anyone can like, you know, fly to India. You can't even legally go to Tibet in living memory. And so the, to be having these sorts of uh, magic adventures told in the what is called the magical autobiography genre, it adds excitement and it does comfort people to know that sure enough, Jesus is there in India looking out for everybody that that makes everyone very happy. 
So as he's moving around in the 20s and 30s, he buddies up with uh, the mining engineer, fellow mining engineer Guy Ballard, and his wife uh, Edna stays with them in Chicago briefly. Guy Ballard goes on to found the I Am Church after a vision of St. Germain, also on Mount Shasta. So uh, lots more fun there. His wife supposedly typed up manuscripts for James Churchward when he's writing his Mew books. So he's he's wired in to the uh, New Age community, the burgeoning New Age community, uh, before it's even called the New Age community. Also, he may have been the Baird Spaulding, who, according to uh, state records, was committed to Patton State Hospital in San Bernardino for an unlisted reason, but possibly court-ordered commitment to a, a mental hospital. And he was arrested at least three times in that period on claims of mine fraud, forgery, and for a paternity suit. So... While he's out cold reading people, he may also have been playing around on the long-suffering Stella while she's home typing up ancient Mew manuscripts for James it, Churchward. It's so precedented, Ken, for a cold reader to also be involved in fraud. It is odd, isn't it? But there we have it. But the man is about to meet the moment because another fella named Douglas Divorce, who was born in 1900, uh, raised in Unity School Thought, which is sort of like Unitarianism, but without the hard edge. <laughs> <laughs> he, he grows up in the Unity School, sells their books for a while, realizes there are more suckers in California than there are in Kansas City, where he is from, moves to L.A. Well, the and Kansas City suckers moved to California, so you got to follow him. Right. A lot of them did. And Douglas Divorce moved uh, to L.A. in 1929, established the Divorce uh, Publishing Company. Right. And, and there's a giant, giant L.A spiritualist new age yeah. occult scene in the twenties. It's it's that really is the Mecca where all of the yeah. spiritual eccentrics are being drawn from all across the land. Right. And, uh, and it is very much that that draws divorce there. Divorce runs into the uh, life and teaching the master of the far East realizes he has a potential worldwide bestseller on his hands meets Spalding somehow, probably, you know, by magnets, if not, no other reason and gets Spalding to uh, agree to let, divorce company republish the book and one of his incentives is if you do that i will pay for you to actually go to india and when divorce says pay what he means of course is recruit about 18 credulous rich dupes to pay for a trip to india with you and <laughs> the the stories of spalding going to india and saying oh when we get to the rest house and you meet jesus on the ganges river that's going to be amazing you're just going to love it and then they get to calcutta and he's like Oh, um, did I mention that the rest house is up a very narrow path and we have to ride horses? And there's so many women here. They probably don't want to ride horses up a mountain path. And the women are like, well, no, we kind of paid to go meet Jesus. Yeah. And he's like, <laughs> it is Jesus. Well, it's the area, the area is full of earthquakes. So I don't know. And they're like, nope, no, we really want to ride up and see Jesus at the rest house. And he says, well, now you've done it. There's an earthquake and the path is gone and we can't go. And also it was destroyed in a flood and Jesus has left. It was your desire to meet Jesus that ruined everything, ruined everything. And he got away with it. Everyone's like, well, I'm, I've never been treated that way. And he's like, well, you know, this is what happens when you ruin it. And mostly uh, they all treat it as just, well, that's what we didn't really expect to meet Jesus. We're just happy. We got to try to meet Jesus. And he, he, uh, he meets a real uh, well, real is a strong word, but a guy named uh, Paul Brunton, who is a, a member of uh, of the English occult uh, theosophy scene and is into something called neo-Hinduism, which is attempting to repackage Hinduism for British audiences. And Brunton says, oh, I know tons of yogis and masters. I'll introduce you to some of them. 
And so it becomes a big party. And then Brunton, who's read Spalding's book and does not immediately discard it as a tissue of lies for some reason, starts saying, oh, so you were in India in the 1890s. Did you know so-and-so? And eventually Spalding under questioning says, well, when I say I was there, I meant I was there astrally. I didn't actually go with my body. You know, it's, it's better to go astrally. It is better to go astrally. Frankly, it requires magic powers. The other one requires a plane. Then it, it saves on it saves on luggage fees. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Spalding comes back from India after this surprisingly not a fiasco. Publishes volume three of of the series of, about the trip to India and about other stuff. Divorce does not pay him royalties. <laughs> uh, he just pays him one hundred and fifty dollar a month retainer to keep him shut up. Takes over the copyrights. Stella divorces him because he's not making millions, I guess, or because she's sick of the playing around. Uh, he writes volume four in 1948, which is yet more discoveries. And then in a series of lectures after that reveals that he had built a camera of past events while he was in India with Charles Steinmetz. Did I mention that American electrical inventor Charles Steinmetz was with me in India? I'm sure I must have mentioned it. No, you d you didn't, Baird Spalding. Well, he was. And we built a camera of past events, and you can't check because Steinmetz is dead. And uh, he says that there's an organization of 26 men working on the camera of past events, and that they've uh, filmed uh, George Washington's inauguration, and they've filmed the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is six foot three. And he talks about how it was hard to find Jesus. And then someone in the audience says, weren't you hanging out with Jesus in India? And he says, oh, no, no, that was later Jesus. This is different right. Jesus. Well, also the Vatican camera of past events is presumably interfering with their right. uh, new age camera of past events. It's messing with it. He's got a uh, a busted nose, possibly from that bar fight in uh, Dawson City, uh, Yukon. But now he says that it was caused by atomic radiation. So he's updating his, his uh, patter. And then, sadly, he dies in uh, Arizona with $110 in his bank account in March of 1953. It's not even one monthly stipend payment. Yeah, no, it isn't. Uh, the Divorce Company publishes Volume 5 from his lecture texts in 1955, and then Volume 6, literally from stuff they found in the warehouse. The Divorce Company publishes that in 1997, and The Divorce Company is still a going concern. It was it's taken like the over. the Godfather 3 of the series. Exactly. But uh, Douglas Divorce is not the person in involved, because Douglas Divorce is gunned down in his office in September of 1953, so just six months after the death of Baird Spaulding, a former mailman named Walter Henry Cruz, who is angry that his wife Hazel has left him and suspects Douglas Divorce of being involved shows up at the publishing company, shoots him four times and uh, runs away and then turns himself into the cops and claims that he has no memory of the shooting, that uh, perhaps he was possessed by a spirit. Right. Well, let this be a lesson to publishers. It is if you rip off your author, if you short them on their royalties, like six months after they die, they have time to put a pretty decent curse together. An astral hit. This, this bears all the all the signs of a curse from beyond the grave. It very much does. And in fact, the curse continues. Uh, his literary executor, Spalding's literary executor, David Bruton, writes a biography of Spalding in which he reveals things like he never went to India. He wasn't born in England. He was sort of a shyster. And uh, he dies suddenly in March 1955. Right. So also don't blow the gaff on a ghost who's yeah. demonstrated an ability to curse you from beyond the grave. To kill from beyond the grave. Not a good idea. Yeah. Don't mess with another writer's thing. That's, I guess, <laughs> the lesson that we learned from this. But yeah, Baird Spaulding 
by and large, contains multitudes, I guess, as we all do on the one hand. He's a criminal forger, a serial liar, and basically a, a, a sharp character all around. On the other hand, apparently very generous whenever he had money, would give it away, went out of his way to find actual yogis for people to meet, even though the, he could have just left, which I guess, in fact, he sort of did towards the end of the trip. But uh, yeah, mostly he had that sort of avuncular aspect that America seems to like in its uh, messianic teachers. And he did a creditable job, I guess we could say, if we're giving him all the credit that we possibly can, of opening a lot of people's minds to the thought that there's more out there than just, you know, what you learned in Sunday school, that people all over the world have religious traditions, and he was completely free of any sort of religious bigotry. Uh, people would say, hey, uh, you were you were hanging out with Jesus. Is Jesus mad at the Jews for killing him? And Baron Spalding says, nope, that's not how it works. Jesus had to die to, to make the mystery happen. That was Jesus's will. You can't be blaming a bunch of other people for that. That's just the fate of the universe. How dare you? How very dare you? So he was, you know, outspoken against any sort of uh, religious bigotry. So I guess that's good, despite him being a serial grifter. Well, you know, lots of people have put words in uh, Jesus's mouth over the years. So uh, good on him for, for putting the correct ones in there. There's a, a Jack Vance, uh, Google the Clever story about uh, Google, of course, who's, who's a, a grifter, leads a group of uh, pilgrims on a quest that uh, goes badly for them. That almost makes me wonder if Jack Vance <laughs> had Spalding in mind. Uh, it's uh, a, an interesting little uh, parallel there. Well, I mean, the, the dates work out because he was gigantic in the 40s and 50s in the in that New Age community, which overlapped very much with science fiction community, obviously. So I, it would not amaze me that Jack Vance was at the very least aware of Baird Spalding and the hilarity that was the 1935 trip to India. So that's the obvious point to put a scenario is that uh, you are uh, along for the, the ride on the trip. You might be a bodyguard for uh, one of the uh, rich people or uh, along in uh, incognito in order to prevent possibly you know what's up at the top of the mountain and you know it's not Jesus and you're the one who has to engineer the earthquakes to keep all those people away from uh, the, the terrible uh, entity. And of course, the uh, the uh, 1953 murder also sounds like something that could uh, uh, happen in a, a mystery scenario, at least in, in the background. And I guess the uh, the other thing is the, the camera of past events. Is yeah. A great, uh, the fact that there's a double coven of people out there, you know, slowly and carefully documenting the past, including this, uh, the Book of Gold City in the Gobi Desert. That was one of the things that they were going to be filming. So the notion that they're sort of wandering around with their camera of past events, just building. And what I like is the, the, the sort of notion that Spalding had the ability be, because of the cold reading, he would meet someone and they would say, Oh, Baird Spalding, you've been to India. Do you know my uncle Charles? And he would go out on many, many details of uncle Charles. And the person would say that that tracks, that is correct. You do know my uncle Charles. And what I think is fun is if Spalding and the other theory that people have is that he had a photographic memory, probably, but also that he had three astral controls who were feeding him knowledge from the Akashic records. But the notion that he is sort of a walking reality uh, condenser that Uncle Charles's uh, you know existence and activities are sort of out there in the ether. When Spalding is talking to someone, they're they're coalesced. I like the notion that the camera of past events is not just the camera that is revealing past events, but it is also attempting to create them and rebuild them, and that there is some sort of 
weird Spaldingy past that is being built around a mysterious city in the Gobi Desert and Jesus in India and all this other cool stuff that uh, they're attempting to sort of just construct with the camera. Just a little double coven of men walking around doing the work and uh, who knows what they're up to in, you know, the 1960s or even today. I feel like there's a there's a, a yellow kingy sort of a, a crossover, uh, not Carcosa necessarily, unless Carcosa is the city in the Gobi Desert, because, of course, Karakota is a city in the Gobi Desert, just saying. So uh, this notion that there's this sort of ongoing breakdown and rewriting of reality around Baird Spalding is, is sort of fun. Right. And if there's something that the player characters have done that is terrible, that they were had excellent security, make sure that they uh, were not recorded or seen in any way. Well, what if they're enemies decide to find out what they were up to on that fateful night and uh, get a clear photograph from their camera of past events of them uh, committing whatever uh, deed it was. Or in a Fall of Delta Green game uh, near the end of the 60s, uh, you can be looking for your much clearer view of the grassy knoll mm-hmm. or uh, solving one of uh, uh, the many other uh, mysteries of that period uh, retroactively. Uh, now, of course, past event camera footage not admissible in court but you know you're, you're not in that business anyway in the uh, in the fall of delta green no and it's uh it makes amazing as you say blackmail material uh the the, the 26 men they could be up to all kind of things uh, just the notion of this sort of little independent cell of of weird occultists maybe with connections to magic from india or secret masters maybe not you could do that thing where there's a murder on the loose uh, bumping people off and you find out the connection between them is that they're members of the 26 so someone mm-hmm. is got the camera and is uh, now covering their tracks. There's just too many scenario hooks uh, to possibly contemplate. So, at, at least six volumes worth, and we haven't even dug around in the warehouse yet. Right. Uh, well, uh, until we get a, a podcast uh, microphone of past events, it's time for us to, uh, we're just going to have to keep making episodes in the future. Right. Uh, and our future is uh, seven days from now, and your future is also seven days from now, when another episode of this self-same podcast will land in your podcast listening apparatus of choice stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games pelgrane press asphagown arc dream dork tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by james simple audio editing by rob borges get your priority question asking access by supporting our patreon at patreon.com backslash ken and robin keep this podcast stocked with the upside down hamburger pies it needs to survive by joining beloved backers ethan mr e schoonover ian nystrom yuri horneman Kelly Fisher and Theron Bretz. Wear the show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. A rhinoceros, a cockatrice, and a turnip-headed wyvern walk into a forest in our latest design, Normal Times. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>